few different ways to be encouraged when you're discouraged. And one of the things that he talks about is he remembers God and his people in the house of God. That was a way for him to encourage his heart. And uh, I just want to tell you this, like it is, I can't think of a better place to be than right here where we get to be God's people in God's house, studying God's word, singing praises to God through the power of God's spirit to God's son who gave his life as a ransom for God's people, ultimately to give glory back to God. I mean, that is an amazing thing. And so I pray just even by you being here, if you're maybe feeling a little bit that way, that you would be encouraged. But not only that, um, one of the reasons why uh, I chose this passage of scripture we're going to look at this morning is because I'm hoping that by spending time in God's word this morning, it would lift up our hearts kind of off of our own circumstances to see God and his glory and his kingdom throughout the world. And so we're going to look at a subject called the kingdom of God this morning. Um, and we're going to look at a particular passage of scripture, Mark chapter 4. Um, so you want to go ahead and turn there with me? Jesus talked in parables a lot uh, related to the kingdom of God. And so Mark 4, Matthew 13, and other passages like that. A parable, by the way, is a, is a story with a truth or a lesson in it. And so we're going to look at one of these parables that relates to the kingdom of God. And so my hope um, is that if you are coming today discouraged, that as we look at God's word this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged by what God is doing both in our lives and in the lives of people all across the globe. You might feel this way when you look out and you see the kingdom of darkness, right? It's right in front of us. A lot of times you read the news headlines, you're like, man, are we winning? Are we on the winning side? Well, God says, yes, you are. In fact, Jesus tells us, don't be discouraged. Take heart. I've overcome the world. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 4. But before we do that, um, I just, like, in order for us to be encouraged, it can't just be something that we just kind of conjure up on our own strength. It has to be something that the Holy Spirit does in us and for us and and through us. And so uh, before we dig into this passage, let me just pray. Um, Let me pray that God would help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and to look up and to see him to see his kingdom, to see his glory. Let me pray for us and do that. Uh, Lord, we just want to come to you this morning and um, uh, we want to, maybe some of us are with David this morning and we say, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Um, We want to put our hope in you. We want to respond. We want to see you for who you truly are. Um, I pray that we would take, um, take courage when we hear the words of Jesus that said, I have overcome the world. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I rule and I reign. God, we pray that your kingdom would come on earth the way that it is in heaven, that would begin in our hearts, but also that it would transform cities and societies and nations in the globe. God, would you please do that by the power of your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at Mark chapter 4. This is the parable of the mustard seed. Three verses, three very simple verses, but um, I, I hope that God captures our hearts as we begin to dig into it. This is what Jesus says. 
With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. All right, two key concepts related to the kingdom of God, two truths about the kingdom of God that Jesus wants to to help our, our hearts and our minds to grab hold of this morning. And the first truth is this, that it starts small. The kingdom of God starts small. You know, Jesus says that there's, there's this crop of a mustard seed that's being planted. And you guys know what mustard is, right? Tastes good on hot dogs. Well, I don't, I don't like it on my hot dog. But some of you guys do. But in addition, um, back in that time, it was particularly used, a valuable commodity was used. Um, it has a lot of oil properties to it, and so it was used for medicine. Um, and it became a, a pretty big crop in that part of the world. But Jesus at the same time, says that it is what? It's the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. It's the smallest of all the seeds. No one even notices that it's in the ground. It's, it's inconsequential. It's insignificant. You can't even really see it. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's small. It seems inconsequential. Have you ever thought about the way that God builds his kingdom? He starts really small. Small like a baby in a stable with some dirty animals in a town called Bethlehem. This is a dot on a tiny blip, a blip of a screen of the Roman Empire. It is so small. And then Jesus, he's a refugee. I don't know if you guys thought about this, but he has to leave and go to Egypt that's the way you would start the kingdom? And then he comes back, and he doesn't come back to Jerusalem. He comes back to Nazareth. He's, he's asked questions. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It was uncultured. It was uneducated. It was just nothing. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He, isn't Jesus like the, 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 the son of a carpenter? He's Joseph's son. It starts small. Not only that, think about the disciples. I mean, these guys, they were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were zealots, and they were all kind of captured from the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus chose to grab his people from, this rural area that was very uneducated. They didn't go to Jerusalem where all the education was. He went to a small place, and these guys were inadequate. They were inconsequential. They were unqualified. They were fearful. They were faithless. They were weak. That was the kingdom that was planted and you can imagine the disciples, they're looking around, they see the Roman Empire, and they're like, Jesus, uh, we're really, really small. And I know that you're doing some, some miracles here, but every time it seems like there's starting to be a larger following, then you say these hard words that sends people away. This doesn't make any sense. And Jesus tells the disciples, hey, that's my plan. It starts small. Everything starts from something very, very small. And I'm sure that that was an encouragement to the disciples. But also, I'm not sure about you, but that encourages my soul. That Jesus glories in bringing greatness out of small things. Did you know that he delights in your and my small beginnings? Jesus is committed to you and me, small people. And yet, Jesus says, I call you by name. I want for you to experience my kingdom work 
in your life. And as you and I trust in the, in the reign and the rule of Jesus in our lives, the kingdom of God advances. But it starts really small. I mean, think about the gospel seed that was planted in your heart and mine and how it started really small. We didn't just overnight become a mature Christian. It takes time. But here's the deal. Four Oaks, don't mistake smallness for insignificance. I absolutely love the stories of foster care and adoption that are being written here at Four Oaks. You know, another couple was just approved for foster care for two kids this past week. That their desire is to, to care for, for people who can't care for themselves to start small in that way. Think about last weekend with the Walk for Life, and some of you guys were there. Pregnancy Center announced that they rescued 250 babies over the past year through their services that we volunteer at and financially give to. Think about one uh, woman who, who quit her part-time job recently so that she could serve as a guardian ad litem to be able to care for children in the foster care system. Folks, this is the kingdom of God having small and humble beginnings, but it is not inconsequential. It is not insignificant. But there's a lot of questions like, really, is this the way that you would bring your kingdom, God? This doesn't make any sense. Jesus is getting a lot of questions. He didn't He didn't respond, though, the way that we would expect him to. He's not like, yes, we're going to take over the world this way. It wasn't the way that the disciples expected. It wasn't the way anyone expected. And in fact, there's a question. You can read it up here. Luke 17, 20. The Pharisees are asking this question, you know, when is the kingdom of God going to come? I mean, you say you're the king. When are you going to bring your kingdom? And I love his answer. This is what it says. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, the kingdom of God doesn't come with pomp and circumstance and all the powerful armies coming down and converging on on the land. No, Rome is not going to be overturned. The earthly kingdom is not going to be established in that way. Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is not going to be observed like that. The kingdom of God, there's a mystery about it. A mystery, by the way, is God's divine purpose that he's held back for a long period of time since the foundation of the world, and then at the right time, he reveals it. This is the mystery of the kingdom, Jesus says, that when I am here, this is when the kingdom comes. The kingdom of God doesn't come with observable signs like you would expect. The kingdom of God comes in the hearts of my people when they trust in my rule and my reign. George Eldon Ladd, this is the way he defines the kingdom. The kingdom of God is his kingship, his rule, his authority. The kingdom of God is not a realm or a people, but it is God's reign. In order to enter the future realm of the kingdom, People must submit themselves to God's rule here and now. So Jesus is making it clear that his kingdom is not about a place or a realm or something that you can see. It's about his reign in the hearts of his people. Now, there will be a future realm. There will be a future place. But that's not the focus right here, right now. And as more people hear this announcement of the king who died for them, then his rule grows. His kingdom grows. Daniel Montgomery and Mike Cosper This is the way they define the kingdom. The kingdom of God is life with God under the rule of our King Jesus. Simply put, the kingdom of God is the good life in Jesus. In other words, the kingdom of God, it it starts in the heart and it starts small. But as 
we begin to trust in Jesus. As we begin to follow after him, the kingdom of God begins to grow. But this is so foreign to us. We don't expect the kingdom of God or, or any kingdom to be established in this way. Instead of coming to kill, Jesus comes to be killed. Instead of conquering with power, Jesus conquers with love. Instead of overthrowing the human rulers and authorities, Jesus says, I will deal the fatal rule to spiritual rulers and authorities by my death and my resurrection. Instead of destroying my enemies, I will rescue my enemies and I will forgive them. This is the way of the kingdom, but it's not the way that we would expect. Jesus, what does he say in the Beatitudes? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall have the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He says, unless you receive the kingdom of God as a child, you can't enter into it. This is so countercultural to us, but this is the way of the kingdom. John Calvin, in talking about this parable, this is what he says, the Lord opened his reign with a feeble and despicable commencement for the express purpose that his power may be more fully illustrated by its unexpected progress. This is the way of the kingdom. It starts small so that God can get all the glory. Think about your life and my life. The kingdom of God starting really small, but as it begins to grow, God gets more and more glory. Think about worldwide that little band of disciples that grew to 120 at the ascension, it continues to grow to this day. The kingdom of God starts small, but point number two, it grows large. It grows large. Jesus explains the small and significant mustard seed. It grows larger, as it says, than all of the garden plants. It puts out large branches, um, it, was, it, was, it became a bush, but it's really bigger than a bush. Uh, most of the time it was seven to nine feet, but there are accounts of this mustard seed growing into a bush that was more like a tree, up to 10 to 15 feet, so much so that a rider and his horse could go under the branches of this mustard bush. In fact, in Matthew 13, uh, Jesus, in the same parable, he calls it a tree. What's the point here? No one expects that this little tiny seed is going to grow into this massive bush, this massive tree. And in the same way, Jesus says, this is how my kingdom is going to be. It's going to start small, but it is going to grow really large. And for folks, we know that this is true. As people are boldly proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and live under his rule and his reign, his kingdom spreads. In Acts 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's about to leave. And his disciples are like, are you going to restore your kingdom now? this when it's going to happen? And Jesus says, don't worry about that. Just be my witnesses and show good works as you speak good words about the king. Good words and good works. And that's the way of the kingdom ever since then. It grows that way. We speak about the king who gave his life as a ransom for his people, who died for his people so their people could be rescued and redeemed and restored. And then you show good works, just like Jesus did. You care for the poor, you, you restore the brokenhearted. You come alongside of the orphans and the widows. That is the way of the kingdom. And the kingdom of God grows. Acts 14, 22, about halfway through 
the book of Acts. This is what Paul does. He's been speaking good words about Jesus and doing good works. But it's not the way of the kingdom that you would expect. Because what does it say? It says, Paul strengthened the souls of the disciples. It's a heart work. The heart of the kingdom. That's where it is. Encouraging them to continue in their faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There is a warfare that's going on. The kingdom of darkness doesn't like it. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, to take away our joy, to take away our satisfaction, to take away our peace in Jesus. But Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Trust in me. And as you do, my kingdom will spread. In AD 100, a little bit later, about one out of every 400 people were believers. That's pretty small, insignificant. But I want you to watch a video with me that shows the spread of Christianity, that shows the spread of the kingdom of God. So let's watch this, and we're going to pause it a couple of times just to give you a little, ex- just a little we're going to explore a little bit of history this morning. So here's the spread of Christianity. Roman Empire, it is growing, but then it begins to, to get smaller. And as it gets smaller, the kingdom of God, Christianity grows larger. I want you to pause right there. All right. So right here, we have good works and good words that are being spoken. And Christianity is growing. People are providing orphan care. People are taking in kids who are abandoned. There's hospitals that are being started. There's hospice care. There's serving of the poor. There's literacy and education. There's all this cultural work that's happening as good works are being done. People are being valued. All gender, not just men, but women as well, are being cared for and seen as being valued and highly lifted up. All races, all socioeconomic statuses, all these things are being pushed as people are trusting in the kingdom of God. But as you guys can see there, if you guys know your geography, um, there's an island off the coast of England, uh, and around 400 AD, Ireland has not yet been reached with the gospel. And anybody Irish? No? All right, well, good. Because uh, I was just about to make fun of you. Um, but uh, no. So Ireland, actually, I don't know if you know this, but Ireland was a bunch of cannibals. Um, in fact, they were slave traders. They would cross the, cross the waters to England with these slave boats. They would be drinking out of skulls, and they would come steal children out of homes, young boys and young girls. They would take them out, and they would take them back across the waters to Ireland and enslave them. Awful, awful stuff. Kingdom of darkness sort of stuff. And one boy, one young, young man, he grew up in a Christian home in England, so the gospel had spread there. Uh, Patricius was his name. He was snatched up on one of these ships and brought over. He was abducted to Ireland. And while he is there, he definitely grew in his faith. He cried out to God over and over again and asked that God would help him, that God would strengthen him. And during this time, at the same time, he is just experiencing persecution. He's experiencing awful things. Well, Patricius, one day he receives a dream from God, he felt. A dream of a ship that was on the coast. And he sensed that God was saying, go to the ship. 
Now, he knew the ship is two, over 200 miles away if he gets there. He knew that if he left and he got t- captured, he'd be killed. But he really sensed this is where God was calling him. And so he, he walks over 200 miles. He wasn't caught. He gets on a ship that was right there just as he dreamed it, took that ship over to France. He began to study God's word more and, and kind of like a seminary. It was called a monastery. Studied God's word more. And for a season there, he did that. And then he went back home to England. And while he is at home in England with his family, reunited with them, he receives another dream. And this time the dream uh, or a vision is of letters coming to him. And one particular letter was a letter from Ireland. And he opens this letter up and it says, come, we need your help. Now, Patricia is just overwhelmed by this. There's no, what in the world? I was enslaved by these people. There's no way I'm going back. But as he began to pray, he really sensed that God was calling him to take a risk, to be bold, to trust that God's kingdom would expand into this area like it had never been before. And so he begins to talk to his family, and he says, hey, I know the culture, I know the language, and I'm really sensing that this is what God is calling me to do. And of course, his family said, no way. But he really, he, he said, this is, what, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so he crosses the waters to Ireland. And there, for the first time, they, they begin to see something different in this now man. And he begins to talk to them. And the first thing he notices is he slept all night. These guys never slept. They were so overwhelmed with with just difficulties in life and, and all the guilt that they experienced over and over again from all of their sin. They were just overwhelmed by that. And they noticed this guy slept. He slept really well. And not only that, but this guy was all about this guy named Jesus. In fact, he would say, Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. He was saying, you must trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has come to restore you, to bring healing in these broken places. And so one by one, the kingdom of God began to plant and grow. Fast forward. This guy, Patricius, planted 700 churches, trained 2,000 pastors, baptized over 100,000 Irish. And the culture was changing just rapidly. They stopped human sacrifice. They stopped slave trade. They stopped cannibalism. And then in these monasteries that he developed, which was really just a training place, there were some guys that were known as peregrinis, and they were traveling monks who evangelized. And so they would cross over the water from Ireland and go back to this area that had now been taken over by the Byzantine emperor and then, and then the Goths to be re-evangelized. And so Christianity began to expand out of Ireland, out of this dark place into these new places. But it wasn't just about good words about the, about the king. It was also good works that began to teach people how to read for the first time, began to clear forests out and to have development. They began to build businesses. All of these things were done in the name of Jesus. And if you guys look back at this parable, it talks about how the birds of the air can make nests in the shade of this mustard tree. Most likely what that's referring to is unbelievers or maybe even unbelieving nations who still benefit from the kingdom 
of God. As Christianity flourishes, people receive the blessings of Christianity, even though they don't yet know Jesus. And we know this to be true. Look at the U.S. Look at the establishment of the wonderful ideals of Christianity here, that we receive blessing from it by being here. Guys, this is what's going on. Now, you might think of Patricius by a different name. His name is St. Patrick. So, St. Patrick's Day, don't just think about green beer and green rivers. (laughs) Think about the kingdom of God advancing to a very dark place because of this man. Amazing stuff. All right, we're going to keep watching here. Christianity spreads to the east. You guys can see that. Um, It doesn't spread primarily through missionaries or apostles. It actually spread primarily through businessmen who were on the Silk Road to China and also spread south to India as they took boats. Um, And then you kind of see Christianity sometimes spread and then it sometimes draws back as as, um, kingdoms kind of take over. Um, One particular kingdom is the Mongol kingdom, which you're going to see pop up on the eastern side right about 1,200-ish. Keep going. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so Bob, you can pause there for a second. So the Mongols, um, led by, of course, Genghis Khan, uh, they began to take over the world, really, larger empire even than the Roman kingdom. And these Mongols, um, as they took over, uh, they began to hear about Christianity, so much so that uh, Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan, he, uh, he asked that the Christian church would send, send 100 people to be able to train his court about Christianity. But unfortunately, the church did not send 100 people. They only sent two, and because of weather, they never made it. And so instead of being able to see the kingdom of God spread in that area, you'll actually see, go ahead and fast forward, you'll see that the Mongols did not trust in Jesus they did not trust in him. Instead, they committed, they committed to Tibetan Buddhism. And for 700 years, that whole area laid in darkness. And as you can see here, Christianity is spreading. Now it's going to start spreading to the west. Uh, but there's still an area of darkness to the east. And then communism takes over in the 1900s. You can pause right about there. That's fine, yeah. So right now... Um, in Mongolia, which is just south of Russia and just north of China, to the east there, there are zero believers in 1990. Zero. But communism, in 1990, it leaves. You can go ahead and push, the pa- or push, push start the rest of the way. So communism diminishes in certain parts of the world, including Mongolia. That's still there in China up there. But, um, but one particular area that opened up was in 1990, communism left, and uh, some missionaries saw the opportunity to see the kingdom of God planted there, to see it advance and to see it grow. And so Brian and Louise Hogan, they were missionaries along with three other people, and they went to a place called Erdenet, which is a town, or excuse me, a city, a third largest city in Mongolia. There's about three million people totally in total Mongolia. And they were a part of this team, and they wanted to take the gospel to this place. And so they began to talk about good, work, or good, good, good words about Jesus, and then they began to show good works. And their first converts were teenage girls, 14 of them. They were all baptized, and they were excited about that. And so were the teenage girls. When a teenage girl gets excited, what do they do? They talk. 
So these teenage girls began to tell their friends about Jesus, so much so that the church grew to about 100 people, almost all teenage girls, and a few teenage guys. Because they you know, were excited about that. They were excited about Jesus, but they were excited about the girls. But this team was kind of like, oh, we're really excited about the growth of the kingdom of God here, but we'd like a few leaders, not to diminish the role of teenage girls. You guys are awesome. I have a teenage girl myself. But they were desiring for heads of households to come to know Jesus Christ. So they prayed. They prayed. And they prayed. And then they said in the middle of the night, all of a sudden it was like the darkness just, boom, it just left. They felt it. They didn't even know how to explain it. It just was like it was gone. And they really sensed that at that point, it was time to see the kingdom of God advance. And so they shared good words about Jesus. And they began to show more good works. And one by one, heads of households began to trust in Jesus for two reasons. One is because they began to use the Mongol word for God. They had brought some other kind of made-up word almost. Um, When people translated the Bible, they used a different sort of word for God that wasn't in reality what the Mongols thought of God at all. And so they said, we want to tell you the true God. We want to explain to you who this true God is, and they used the Mongolian word for God. And they they began to explain to them, and they they began to see like, oh, this this is the true God. And this, this God is, is our God. He's the God of Mongolians. And so that was one significant thing. The other thing is that God began to do miracles there. There was a man who was blind who could see. There was a man who was lame, who could walk. And so as good works were demonstrated by their good words, people began to trust in Jesus. Fast forward, this team of five missionaries, three and a half years later, gave all of the leadership over to the locals. It had become that strong in that amount of time. And now 27 years later, that little tiny group of 14 girls grew now to a church of over 100,000 Mongolians in the past 25 years, gathering in some 600 churches. Not only that, but one out of every 220 Mongolians are sent to another part of the world as a missionary. That's the highest ratio of any church. Amazing. The kingdom of darkness could not prevail against the kingdom of light. And the king, in King Jesus, as he's honored and obeyed and trusted in, it advances. It's amazing stuff. Here's the cool thing about the kingdom of God, and I want to encourage you with this, because sometimes we can get discouraged, like, oh, is Satan winning? Satan is not winning at all. Um, go ahead and show the next slide here real quick. Over the past hundred years, the Christian, Christ, practicing Christians has grown from percent of two hundred, two, about two and a half percent of the world is Christian now to about 12 percent. The kingdom of God, though, this is really important. The kingdom of God, as it grows large, it's not just a Western Christianity. It is a global Christianity. Go ahead and turn on the next slide. Back in the early 1900s, you can see that most of the percent of of Christians were found in Americas and in Europe. But now, in fact, in the mid-2000s, it moved so that instead of being a greater proportion of Christians are now in other parts of the world than in the West. And now there are more missionaries that are sent from other parts of the world than from the West. It is becoming a global religion. 
It's an amazing thing that the kingdom of God that starts small grows large. In China, there were one million Christians in 1949. In 2010, 55 million. It grows by over 10% every single year. In Nepal, zero Christians. The Van Stratums, our friends, Brian and Lois, who are in Nepal, zero Christians in 1950, 29 in 1960, and now over 500,000 Christians. There still are places in the Himalayas where they are, that, that this complete darkness. There's no believers there. But in other parts of Nepal, it is growing rapidly. In Africa, about 10 million Christians in 1900, 500 million Christians today. There's an evening in the Philippines next weekend, by the way. Uh, Kate Shell, she's one of our gospel partners. She's going to be sharing about the gospel moving in the Philippines. Um, there's a small number of Christians in the Philippines, actually, but it's beginning to grow, and so she's going to be sharing with you how the kingdom of God started small, but it's beginning to grow large in the Philippines as well. I would encourage you to come to that, just some more storytelling of what God is doing. It's an amazing thing. For Oaks, the church is the living manifestation that the kingdom is here. King Jesus reigns. God's kingdom is not only expanding one person at a time, but as groups of people trust in him, communities are changed, cities are changed, and even nations are changed for God's glory. But as I just said, there's still work to be done. Matthew 24, 14. Let's go what Jesus says about the kingdom. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will will come. That word nations, another, uh, a better translation of that is people groups. There are about 12,000 people groups. There's 500, over 500 people groups just in Nigeria, to give you an idea. So it's people with a distinct language, culture, history. And Jesus is saying, my design is that the kingdom of God will grow large so that every, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will come to know me. And so there's still work to be done. There's not only people groups to be reached, but there's also people right here in Tallahassee that need to know Jesus Christ. Our work is not finished. And so let me give you three things, three things I want to charge us with this morning as it relates to the kingdom of God. And the first thing is this, pray. Pray in two different directions. First, pray with thanksgiving. Thank the Lord for God's grace his marvelous work in the hearts of his people, including our heart. Thank the Lord that God has, has grown you from an infant in Christ, maybe to now maturing in Christ and continuing to grow into a mature adult. Thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for, his, for your victories over sin. Praise the Lord for how he's working, how he's moving, how he is reigning more and more in your life and in mine. Thank the Lord, too, for the way that even like God's grown our church right here at Four Oaks. We started with a group of six people in the living room. Now we have over a thousand people. That is amazing. Let's thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for the way that he is moving throughout the globe. It is awesome. We are seeing the kingdom of God advance throughout the world. On the flip side, not only just pray with gratitude, but also pray with supplication. Pray that God's kingdom would come on earth the way it is in heaven. There are many, many places still of darkness that need to know Jesus. People right on our street that we can pray for. Pray even for our own lives that we would be more conformed ever more into the image of God, that his rule and reign in our lives would grow. Pray 
that God would send more laborers into the harvest where the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray. Number two, take bold action. What do I mean by that? We're on the winning team. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is on our side. We don't have to shrink back. We don't have to be in fear. We can live in faith, trusting that the King of God is for us. He's never against us. Be bold. And I don't know what boldness that might be. It might mean boldness for your life where you're sensing like, God needs to rule in this area of my life and I haven't taken the drastic actions that I need to to get this right with him. It might mean boldness to go down your street and talk to that person you, you know is not a Christian and you, you want to talk to them, but you just haven't had the guts to do it. Take risks, good risks, wise risks for the kingdom of God. Know that the king is on our side. It might mean something even bigger than that. It might be starting a new business. Think of um, Dale White, who was in prison. And now, because of his faith in Jesus, he's running a prison ministry. He's running the Living Harvest right here in our shopping center. Think about Kelly Hutto, person with a heart for those who are disabled, and she started a ministry to care for them, play big, in our shopping center. I don't know what it might be, but instead of, um, Jay Grisham Machen, he talks about, instead of being culture consumers, be culture makers. Change through your good words and your good works, the culture that we live in, knowing that the kingdom of God is greater in us than it is in the world. This is actually what Jay Grisham Machen says. He says, the task of restoring truth to the culture depends largely on the lay people. To bring back truth on a practical level, the church must encourage Christians to be not merely consumers of culture, but makers of culture. The church needs to cultivate Christian artists, musicians, novelists, filmmakers, journalists, attorneys, teachers, scientists, business executives, and the like, teaching its lay people the sense in which every secular vocation, including above all the callings of husband, wife, and parent, is a sphere of Christian ministry, a way of serving God and neighbor that is grounded in God's truth. And he concludes with this, Christian lay people, meaning, meaning guys, <laughs> Christian people must be encouraged to be leaders in their fields rather than eager to please followers, working from the assumptions of their biblical worldview, not the vapid cliches of pop culture. He's challenging us. He's saying, be bold. Take bold action. Trust that you are in the right place, that you are on the winning team. Don't be afraid. And so I don't know what that might mean for you, but for me, it means taking a step out and starting a Bible study in my neighborhood. So I've been been convicted about, and I haven't taken the steps to do that. I don't know what it is for you, but do it. Take action. Take bold action. And last but not least, Wait in hope. Wait with hope. Don't lose heart. Jesus is coming. He's inaugurated his kingdom when he came. He's continuing his kingdom now, and he will consummate his kingdom in the future. He has promised that he will make every wrong right. He will, make, he will right every wrong. He will, he will restore. He will renew. He will, he will eradicate all sin and all disease and all sickness and all pain. He is going to make all things new. His kingdom will endure forever and ever and ever. Wait with hope. I want to read to you a a devotional that I think goes along with this from Paul Tripp. It's a great little devotional, by the way, called New Morning Mercies. 
It's from March 2nd. I was just really excited and compelled when I thought about this. This is what he says. Waiting is your calling. Waiting is your blessing. It's kind of an interesting way to say it. (laughs) Every one of God's children has been chosen to wait because every one of God's children lives between the already and the not yet. Already this world has been broken by sin, but not yet has it been made new again. Already Jesus has come, but not yet has he returned to take you home with him forever. Already your sins have been forgiven, but not yet have you been fully delivered from them. Already Jesus reigns, but not yet has his final kingdom come. Already sin has been defeated, but not yet has it been completely destroyed. Already you have been given grace, but not yet has that grace finished its work. You see, we're all called to wait because we all live right smack dab in the middle of God's redemptive story. We all wait for the final end of the work that God has begun in and for us. But we don't just wait. We wait in hope. We wait believing that what God has begun, he will complete. So we live with confidence and courage. We get up every morning and act upon what is to come. And because what is to come is sure, we know that our labor in God's name is never in vain. So we wait and act. We wait and work. We wait and fight. We wait and conquer. We wait and proclaim. We wait and run. We wait and sacrifice. We wait and give. We wait and worship. Waiting on God is an action based on confident assurance of grace to come and that God's kingdom will endure forever. Amen? Let's pray.